Michael Lister has published most recently in the Malahat Review, Canadian Literature, and the art magazine Border Crossings. His poems appear in the inaugural Best of Canadian Poetry in English, and he has twice been nominated for a Pushcart Prize. His debut, Bloom, is forthcoming from the House of Anansi. He lives in Montreal's Mile End. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Good to be here. You've furnished me with 14 poems. When's the book coming out? We're not entirely sure. The date is a little bit up in the air, but it will be soon. I expect to be done the book in about five months. It's it's about 85% done now. It's about 60 pages, and it might be be 65 or 70. It's not going to be that much longer. So perhaps you could frame our conversation by telling us a bit about what motivated you to write about Bloom. Bloom follows the last day of Louis Sloten at work. Louis Sloten was a a, a real-life physicist who was born in Winnipeg in 1910 and went to work for the Manhattan Project in 1944. The Manhattan Project, of course, was the U.S. government's attempt to build an atom bomb. In the spring of 1946, May 21st, was Louis Sloten's last day at work, and he was scheduled to leave the next day to the South Pacific to oversee testing of the bombs that he had helped make. He was one of the senior physicists, so he was up there with Oppenheimer and and, and that group in designing and creating the bomb. Anyways, on his last day, on May 21st, 1946, he was conducting an experiment that was nicknamed Tickling the Dragon's Tail, whereby two spheres of reflective metal were held around a a plutonium core, normally using uh, these protective shims. The shims would be lowered down into place so that the closer they got, the more reactive the core was. And for whatever reason, Sloten that day decided to forego the normal safety procedures and separate the two spheres with a flathead screwdriver. And as he was doing that, the screwdriver slipped and the core went critical. The, there was a blue... There was a blue flash yeah. um, as the, the air around the core ionized. It sounds a bit like a scene from Superman. Yeah, yeah it, it does. It does, actually. In fact, they made a movie about it where the Louis Sloten archetype character was played by John Cusack. But anyway, so uh, Sloten, apparently what happened was that his quick reaction of separating the two spheres saved the other men in the room. And Sloten died eight days later, but was proclaimed a hero. And uh, everyone else in the room was held safe because apparently uh, Sloten's reaction was... His heroic reaction was just in time. Uh, He knew what he was doing, too, because he said, I'm I'm done, you're... uh... That's right. Afterwards, afterwards, he he said, you guys should be fine, but I think I'm done for. So the book then, Bloom, I was thinking about this tickling the dragon's tail sort of thing. Uh, The idea of trying to represent the danger the virtuosity and the, the the hubris that would be required to, to do that sort of thing. And I was trying to find a form for it, and so I started to write these English-to-English translations where I, I would take a poem that was written by whoever and then try and bring, in the same way that Sloten brought the, you know, the reflective shims down around it, try and do the same thing, changing the language just enough that it was you know, sort of irradiated into something new while maintaining the, you know, the sort of the ghost of the original. To make it bloom. To make it bloom, that's right. The other thing is to just, just add a little bit more danger. Um, uh, in the same way that Ulysses by James Joyce is based after the Odyssey, it's the gantry. Yeah, the gantry of bloom is, is Joyce's Ulysses. Uh, I, say that, I say that very humbly, and, but the, there had to be enough danger involved in the, in the making of the book. Danger in possibly insulting the original frame makers? 
or the the critical response to it? What's the danger? I think a little bit both. I mean, I think the person who's in the most danger is probably me. But why are you in danger? Well, because I, I, I wanted to flirt with... Again, I, I didn't just want to base... A lot of poets do this. You know, they, they base poems after whoever, right? And yeah. what they really mean by that is they take the first little bit and sort of use it as a jumping off point. That's that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to to bring my translation as close to as close to almost to plagiarism as I could, while still having it be something completely new, so that the reader who knew anything about the originals would be able to sort of like vicariously live through this very charged, dangerous experience of of having something flirt with plagiarism. And this is what the critic has called allotropic. Allotropic, yeah, that's right. Ulysses exists allotropically. An allotrope is, is a, a chemical compound's ability, ability to exist in two simultaneous chemical states at once. What I'm trying to do is have it exist in sort of three places at once. Um, the narrative place, the, the non-fiction place. The, the, the um, conversation about Sloten. That's right. The, the actual documenting of Sloten's, Sloten's day. Oh, you know, so this is one day just as uh, Ulysses is... That's right, this is okay. the day, this is May 21st, 1946, the day okay. of the actual accident. It exists in that place, that there's some sort of, there's some sort of simulacrum there between what actually happened and, uh, and what I put down. It, ex- it exists in, in, in sort of atomic parts, you know, the, the originals that are composing it, they're sort of like the atoms of the book, and then the, the overarching chemical structure of Ulysses binding it all together. Okay. So, this is uh, this is uh, an homage to what Joyce did with the uh, the Odyssey then. Both of those books are, I mean, I would never say that they're, that, you know, this is any anywhere near in line with those books, of no, course. No, right? but it's but the I'm concept, uh, the, it's the conceit that, that's caught your attention. And it seemed like, that seemed like the only books, but books specifically referring to Ulysses, powerful enough, that was dangerous enough to be anywhere near a, a literary representation of the power of the atomic bomb. Um, I'm playing with the most with the most dangerous charged dragon in, in the canon. It was the only one that I felt that I that by tickling I might get in enough trouble with to to be able to show what Slotin was doing. The sexual permissiveness to what you you mean it's talking about sex. I think that's what the judge was concerned about, is is this immoral or not? And and also the fact that the publisher could be sued, and so as a result it was published in the States. That, think, yeah, or yeah you're, you're talking about the censorship of Ulysses. Right, well, I'm, what I'm trying to get at, though, is the, the danger. You, why is this, why do you think this is... Well, I think it's so dangerous because Ulysses is, I mean, Ulysses is almost a... Uh, it's 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 almost unapproachable as as a writer. I mean, it's uh, it's it's just so. I mean, the the actual the you know whatever happened legally around it was mm. that that's I mean that's of very minor significance because that just had to do with sort of like the you know the uh, the sort of puritanical. Uh, Zeitgeist at the time, and they were latching onto very minor elements of Ulysses. The the reason why it's unapproachable is because it's just it's just so so yeah, unbelievably brilliant, and but also so troublesome, you know. And, and it's it's it has in many ways it always keeps its back turned to you, no matter how many times you read it, no matter how how great a critic you are. Elman talks about this all the time. I mean, he's the only guy who can really really read it 
Yeah. Um, Joseph Campbell did some interesting stuff. Yeah, he did. Finnegan's Wake. Yes, yes, he did. I mean, Finnegan's Wake is a whole other different thing. But, yeah. but I mean, Ulysses was the only book that was that was difficult and controversial enough. I mean, it's almost like suicide to to say that you're basing your first book of poems as a young Canadian Canadian poet <laughs> on Joyce's Ulysses, right? Like, I mean, it's like a, you might as well just you know hang yourself in the street. Um, but it was the only one that that had that had enough um, enough of a controversy around my trying to address it that would that would that would be enough of a enough of a simulacrum uh, to Sloten's tickling the dragon tail. Just trying to think of some other uh, great works that uh, I suppose. Did you go? Did you purposefully? Go through listen. the canon and say, "Well, no, no." I mean, first it started. I mean, it started almost as a pun, um, which is which is the thing that uh, that sort of led me to Ulysses. You know, the great the great book of punning uh, was that there was this. I learned that scientists called the unexpected prompt criticality of of a nuclear core a bloom. Okay, um, and so once once I heard that. Um, it must have been an epiphany then. It, it must was have been like a, it was a light mean, going on. Wow! It was, and I and you know I I knew that I wanted I knew that I was only really interested in this in this one day. Um, uh, you know, the, the old the old writerly maxim is you know uh, show up early and uh, show up late and leave early. Um, and so I didn't really want to tell too much of Sloten um, outside of this one day, um, and. So if I was going to do that, I mean, the, the place to start to look is Ulysses, the great book about a single day. And its hero is Leopold Bloom, and so there was that instant, that pun that gave me, that gave me sort of permission to, to start tampering with the two. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, yeah. Yeah, it's a very uh, elegant... Uh, um Coincidence or an elegant, elegant uh, message to you that said, that tells you yes, this is what's right. And and there were there were a lot of I mean there were a lot of coincidences when it came to when it came to the writing of the writing of Bloom. And I I, I don't really want to you know mythologize uh, the the whole the whole thing too much because this isn't it's not about me. But no, but there is, the, is there is that beautiful yeah. Is that what you're going to talk about? Well, the, 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 the border crossings thing. Yeah. The, the relationship. Yeah. yeah. Um, I uh, before he was my editor, uh, uh, Ken Babstock. Um, I, w- I was actually staying at his house when I started to write some of the poems from from Bloom when it really started to take shape. Um, and he he and his partner Laura were were away uh, in Berlin for a week and a half, and they asked me to to look after their their dog. Um, when they came back, I, I had written, you know, I'd been working on some of these poems for a while and showed, showed him some poems, and he said, listen, you should send it to Border Crossings. Um, uh, you know, I, I just put some stuff in there, and they accepted it, and, and I think that this would, it would be a good place to publish it. So I said, yeah, sure, I'll try. So I sent it away to Border Crossings, and... Uh, and uh, Mika, about, Mika Walsh. Yeah, that's right. I, uh, about a week and a half later, Mika Walsh, the editor, wrote me back, and she said, she said... I, I'm I'm just shocked to get these because my my brother-in-law is named Louis Ludwig and he takes his first name from his uncle Louis Sloten. 
Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, we both were, we were both like, what in God's name is going on? Um, yeah. And uh, that was that was the first of a couple. The, the most recent one, which was sort of interesting, is uh, in August I went to uh, I went to Los Alamos. Um, I I didn't think I I I I had planned this trip, you know, a couple months in advance, and uh, and I was I was up at a friend's cottage, um, and uh, and you know time was drawing near when I was supposed to leave, and I really didn't want to go. I was having a great time at the cottage, and I was doing good work, and. And I, you know, I, I figured, well, you know, if I don't go now, I'm never going to go. So I said, screw it. And I got on the plane and I went. And, uh, and, uh, I was, I was there for a couple days and it was, it was very strange. There's nothing left of Los Alamos. It's, it's, it could be, you know, it could be any anonymous town in the U.S. now. There's what, what used to be, what used to be the, uh, the scientific area and, you know, the residential area where all the scientists live is now, is now just, you know, uh, prefab strip malls. Uh, mm. it's, it was like the city was, was like trying to forget itself. Um, forget what, what made it unique, you know? Um, <laughs> actually, as you go in, there's a, there's a little sign that says totally unironically, welcome to Los Alamos where discoveries are made. <laughs> uh, anyway, so I was, I was there and, uh, and there's this little sort of dicey, uh, uh, museum, uh, which is like really the only thing left of that time, and they have they have some some you know photocopies of documents and uh, some some cool photographs and stuff like that. Anyway, so we were walking. I was walking around, and uh, and I rounded a corner, and there was a little poster, a handmade poster on the wall that said, "Do you have plans for New Year's Eve? Ring in 1946 in style with the boys of D Block or whatever." And it said, "Hosted by," and there was like a little list of the guys who were hosting this party, and Louis Slotin's name was there. And in his hand, and, and, I, and it was a really moving moment. You know, I had come looking for some sort of, you know, scrap of him, and, and just his name on that invitation was enough. And just then my, my phone uh, beeped. Uh, it beeped its little email beep, and I went down to look at it, and, uh, and it was an email from, from Anansi saying that they would, they would like to buy the book. So oh, wow. Yeah, it was, it was it I was, mean it was again, it was within minutes of actually seeing his name. I was, I was staring at his name. Yeah. Uh, which it was it was just a wild it was a wild moment. Did he believe in God? <laughs> uh well if uh, if I believed in God it wouldn't I don't think it would be God who would be setting all that stuff up. Uh that is what they call grace. Um well, it, it, it reminds me of something that Arnold, Arnold Palmer, uh, the golfer, said. The more I practice, the luckier I get. Um, and that's one thing that, that I found with Bloom is that, is that I sort of, the, the sort of triangular shape of it has allowed coincidences to pop up uh, in ways that I think if I was just to write a book of just, you know, standard lyrics, I don't think I would have that chance for serendipity. Who was it who said that poets poets spend their life walking a hill in a lightning storm, hoping once to be struck? Um, Bloom just sort of increases the chances that mm. that it's that it's gonna that it's gonna strike. I hope. I'm talking with Michael Lista, the author of the forthcoming book Bloom. Let's get into the words then, the poems that you uh, that you sent me. 
And you'll have to help me. Most of them have Louis Sloten in the title. Yeah. I'd just like to throw out some of the lines that really stopped me. Now, this is the first poem, and you mentioned it's titled... Louis Sloten is Pigeon Feeder? It's basically about uh, his wife and the relationship between his wife and his various colleagues at uh, Los Alamos. Morning is clear as a sun-bleached bivalve. Bivalve's pretty clear. A writer friend of mine who has been a, a real help to me, Steve Hyten, he looked at him and said, I actually don't know if that works. But my editor, Ken, said uh, the first time he ever read it, he, he was like, I like that. Mm-hmm. I like that a lot. And I think Ken works a lot from his ear. And if it sounds okay, generally passes passes the test. Later on, I, I started to think that the sun-bleached bivalve, the, the sort of clamor and oyster, had a, like a, almost like a physical rhyme with the apparatus that ended up being Sloten's undoing, the beryllium sphere sort of closing down around it. Uh, Alvin Graves, Louis uh, Sloten, was tasked with training him. That's right. He was his uh, replacement. This is what Alvin Graves did with Louis Sloten's wife. He blazed a finger up the milky mile of her thigh. Yeah. Sloten is obsessed with, I, I should have said this earlier, nine months to the day before this accident, uh, the day on which the book takes place, Harry Delane, who was uh, a counterpart of Louis, died in almost the exact same way as Sloten did, working on the same core of plutonium. And there's a memorial service for Delane to commemorate the, the day of this accident, which was you know nine months to the day before. And Sloten is obsessed with the sort of, you know, the coincidence of this and with the coincidence of this being the ninth, the nine-month anniversary. And so his thoughts are very much on him. So he's sort of chasing Delane through the day. The day before, Graves, Sloten's replacement, has engaged in this affair with um, Sloten's wife. And That's so, on the record? No. <laughs> I should have said this earlier. Um, Sloten wasn't married. Sloten had no wife. Sloten was a bachelor. I mean, as far as we know. Um, but there's so little known about Sloten that, uh, that in, in my take on him, uh, he's married. In the book, I, I talk about how uh, the, their marriage is a secret marriage uh, to everyone in the outside world in the same way that, that Sloten's work is a secret. So maybe that could be the reason why we haven't heard of it, because they kept it a secret from everyone except you know those in the Manhattan Project. And yet he's still... A cuckold. He is. And uh, it seems that everyone knows this. They do. Just like Bloom. I guess so. That, and uh, the reason why I, ch- I, I picked the word, it d- well, didn't really originally appear that way. Uh, the line didn't say, uh, blazed a finger. I think it said something like, uh, drew a finger or something like that. But uh, the name of Molly's, Molly Bloom's mister, <laughs> I guess, <laughs> Lover, is, yeah. is yeah. Uh, yeah. Blaze Boylan. Very good. <laughs> Game to prime yourself for yourselves. So they're talking about, um, is this a turn-on for him to see her being seduced by other men? Yeah, it, I, think it, I think it could be. I was reading a lot of Hemingway at the time that I was, uh, that I was writing that, and he, he touches on it sometimes in, in his writing, the, the erotics of a marriage being something that isn't really accessible to the outside viewer of it, and... I, I was interested in the idea of maybe Sloten and his wife turning each other on by sleeping with other people. 
wanting them is wanting's own neurosis. Yeah, uh, I had that one. Uh, the line actually goes: if you go back a couple, this is another example of uh, of the, the sort of danger of translation. A lot of the times, my translations end or begin with the same lines as the original, or with the same uh, words as the original. So. And this is after uh, Peter Van Turen, yeah. The original, the original ends where he's talking about the pigeons flying away from this old man who's feeding them. The last line goes something like, see where their pecker blab hangs like a neurosis, which is one of the great, great lines in Canadian poetry. So I wanted to take a shot at it, and I wanted it to end in neurosis. And I found myself writing three lines before uh, the word osmosis, so I'll just read the last little bit. Um, okay. uh, their pale bodies decompose into the strobe of this new Mexican morning as if by osmosis. Still, the air flurries with the fragrance of their skin as if wanting them was wanting zone neurosis. I was excited that I got to rhyme osmosis and neurosis. So. Well, it's funny, you know, that reminded me, for whatever reason, of a, a well-known heart surgeon who flirted around with prostitutes yeah, and was caught on the surface. It was such a silly thing because he could have gone to another city or another right. country, and but he did this in, a, in his hometown. Right. There's that excitement of being caught and destroying your reputation. Does that enter into any of this? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and actually, that's the central question of the book, right? The central question that, that I started with was why in the name of God would Sloten on his last day of work, performing one of the most dangerous jobs that, that there was in 1946. Why? Why would he would he use a screwdriver to separate these two the two halves of the spheres, right? And that, to me, was the reason for writing the book. I was told right from the very beginning by everyone, by the little that was written of Sloten, by Sloten's family, who I went to Winnipeg to meet, that he was a hero, that his quick reaction had saved everyone. But to them I asked, why? what, what about what happened before the accident, mm. in the seconds before it. What about, what about his endangering the lives of himself and his eight colleagues, right? So he was uh, reckless. Well, there are a couple, there are a couple answers, uh, possible answers. He was reckless. I mean, reckless maybe for, for, the, sake of, for the sake of his science, maybe because yeah. he couldn't get as, an accu- as accurate a reading using, using the, uh, the protective shims. Or maybe he wanted to be a Superman. That's part of it, too. Maybe he thought that he was... There was a bit of braggadocio that yeah. he could that he could control it, that he could handle it. But then the darker questions are maybe remember what Sloten was doing, what he had done was contribute to in the same way that the Trojan horse was the world's first weapon of mass destruction, you know, uh, created by Odysseus. Louis Sloten, I mean, contributed to the death of tens of thousands of people. There could have been an element of self-destructiveness to it. There could even, and this is again, this is non-scientific, this is just for the purposes of this fictional account that I'm telling. Graves, his replacement, was in the room right beside him. There could have been a homicidal element to it. That's the great mystery of Sloan. Why the hell would he do it? I don't really know. There are possibilities in the book, but that's, I guess that's for people to find out. I'm speaking with Michael Lista, the author of, almost author, of an almost book, Bloom. Let's just quickly run through some of the other, uh, if, we, if, sure. if you don't mind. Of uh, so that particular poem was after Peter Van Turn, who you prize highly. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Not a very 
well-known Canadian poet, I don't... In Montreal, his reputation is, I mean, among certain circles, it's it's pretty firm. But there are a lot of younger poets who've, who've really latched on to him, like uh, Zachariah Wells, who's a great poet and critic. He's written about Van Turen on a number of occasions and writes spectacularly about him. I think he's more appreciated now by, well, maybe not my generation, generation just ahead of me, because mm-hmm. I don't really know what's going on with my generation as much. This is from a poem that's after Troy uh, Jollymore. Yeah. When an atom's center smashes and cracks, new light explodes from matter's collapse. And that was about a relationship splitting up. Yeah. One of your relationships? <laughs> um, it's a very optimistic way of looking at a breakup. Yeah, actually, Mika, Mika uh, in her introduction to this stuff from Bloom, she wrote, she wrote about it better than I can talk about it. There's a sound that I imagined there being in the 40s and 50s, uh, like a breezy optimism, I think she calls it. A crazy way of looking at the, the metaphor in it is that of a bomb exploding, an atom bomb exploding. Uh, it's, a silly, it's a silly, sort of almost uh, juvenilely op- optimistic way of looking at an atom bomb uh, opening probably, up new possibilities. Uh, yeah, yeah. Po- possibly. Cleaning things out. Yeah, exactly. I don't know if it's about me. I found myself, uh, once, I, once I sort of figured out what Louis Slotin's voice sounded like, I found myself sort of thinking like him. His sound was in my head. Mm. And I, I, I tell friends this, besides the fact that, that Slotin is a philanderer and, uh, and a nuclear physicist, uh, besides all that, I think Bloom is, in, in many ways, it's, it's a bit of an autobiography. I think because I ended up, you know, really looking for looking for the evolution of the central metaphor of what he is. I found that it was very similar to, I, I guess, what, what I thought mine was, uh, at least in writing the book. Which is? Trying to do something that might be, that might be a, little bit, a little bit too dangerous for my own good. <laughs> it could be a total failure. But the death isn't the... Uh, your life isn't on the line like his was. No, it's not. You're not a morose poet. <laughs> no, I, 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 no, I, I don't think I am. But um, I had to flirt with failure enough that it would do him justice. I mean, Jesus, basing a book after Ulysses is yeah probably not a great idea. But whatever, we'll see if it works. This is about, uh, and again, I don't know the title of Louis Slotin on uh, on self love in a chapel. Okay, it ends with my beloved replacement. In other okay. words. It sounds to me like there's already been there's been a, an irreplaceable love. This love is just a replacement for the true love that you may have experienced, and no one could replace that previous true love. Well, actually, th- it's funny that you read it that way because uh, I, I mean I think that's also valid. But what I what I had meant was uh, he says uh, this isn't my love. It's a it's a poem about jerking off. Slotin is masturbating in the basement of a chapel when when they're mourning. His, his past friend, Delane, who had died nine months earlier. He says, in the original, in the Babstock version, he, he writes, it's from his first book, Mean, which was probably one of the best they, debuts in, uh, in uh, Canadian poetry. It's, it's just fantastic. Um, but anyways, this is one of, the great, one of the great masturbating poems. So he writes about his ejaculate, uh, an opaque rue, an amorphous puddle like those that gulls drop in sand. This isn't my love I've caught in my hand. Not love, but a potential reincarnation of Ayn Rand, which is just 
so ridiculously hilarious. In my version, he says, this isn't my love I've exhumed in the basement, not love, but maybe Graves, my beloved replacement, the gentleman who, who's having sex with his wife. So Graves strangely, is his replacement in his role. Right. I, I found it uh, strangely uh, homoerotic, put down. Uh, and of course there's that great masturbating scene in uh, Ulysses. That's right. With the fireworks. We'll move to Irving Layton then. Sex appeal. Louis Lutton sex appeal. Yeah. You talk about baby-eating smiles, and then you talk about famous grin that still dispatches women by the billion into a bedlam into bed. That's right. Baby-eating smiles. Yeah, um... That what the nuclear bomb did? Well... Yeah, the, 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 he, I, I write the, uh, the pandemonic faces of his peers. I imagine, I imagine Sloten biking around, suddenly realizing that he's, that he's probably in, uh, at, you know, at the beginning of Milton's hell. For a second to see the insanity of it all, and then his response to it is he, he sees all these horrible demonic figures walking around his cohort, and he thinks of his atomic bomb, his happy atomic bomb, as being some sort of consolation. I, I, I tried to imagine what it must have been like for Slow to walk around on that last day and in the same way that I guess a you know, a kid walks around his high school hall for one last time and sort of seen, sees it in a strange way. How how strange must it have been to for those guys, you know, to uh, to be walking around Los Alamos after Hiroshima and Nagasaki and know that it was their hands that, that made it. This is very shortly after their success. Yeah, this this would have been about nine months after it. And so his famous grin and being able to seduce women tied in with the power of the, you know, look look what I've done, I've done what gods can do. I think so. I think so that, I'm irresistible. I think so. I mean, I think that that's part of the paradox of, of these men. They were they were so spectacularly brilliant. And from, you know, most of the accounts, it was for a lot of the time at Los Alamos, before the bomb was made, it was like, you know, the, the greatest intellectual party of of the 20th century you know you had half the guys had Nobel Prizes and it was just they subsided they subsisted on coffee and martinis and cigarettes and apparently there were there were so many babies born at Los Alamos in you know the nine months after it was started that General Groves who was who was the military head you know had to had to send out flyers requesting that men and women practice somewhat safer sex these scientists then were, were having sex with a lot Sci- of women? Science, you know, I'm sure most of them were their wives, um, maybe yeah. not so much, but not just the scientists, all the, all the staff, the civilian staff, the military staff, all of them. They're kind of ironic, isn't it? The death and... That, well, but, I mean... Birth and death. But everyone talks about this. Freud talks about this all the yeah. time, that the thanatonic principle is, is the erotic principle. It's, yeah. it's the same one. This is proof of it. Yeah, right? it's... I think it is. I think you're right. That's the world that I imagine... For Sloten, it's, there's not much time for anything but but uh, sex and physics. Well, two things that he loves, I guess. He's doing what he loves. This poem, when I've got uh, two more here, I want to talk about yeah, sure. two or three. Is after Don Patterson. Things we've betrayed, foregone, or loved too deeply to desire, are re-enlightened in divorce's fire. So we're going back to this. Uh, optimistic view of splitting up. That poem, the original is so beautiful. You know, it's called The White Lie. Patterson writes about, about having to keep the world sort of, you know, keep the world at bay to, in order to love it. And I think that that's... Drill it somehow. Well, I mean, think of, think of what mental state you would have to be in 
to know that your work ended up resulting in you know the the the, the death of uh, tens of thousands of civilians, right? I mean, what the, the the reason that we've always been given is that is that it's it prevented the war from dragging on even more, yeah. right? So. Yeah. There's Bombing for peace. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. There's an insanity to it, right? And and that and that poem, that poem, the logic in that poem, I wanted to. It's in uh, a, a very strict rhyme and meter, which gives it gives that gives poems, you know, a, a sort of a, a rhythmic rhythmic authority, a poetic authority. While at the same time, the logic of the actual poem is really off. It, it keeps its own logic at bay, which is I, I probably what you know what these guys would have had to do to to reconcile to live with work. Absolutely. Yeah. Ted Hughes, euthanized child in one hand, his sense of humor in the other. Same idea. Yeah, I like that poem a lot. That's from, the original is from Improvises, Crow Improvises. It's from Crow, Crow which is uh, just, I mean, such a gorgeous book and such a tough book to, to approach, trying to do something like this. That sort of strange contradictory logic is, is definitely at work. I just want to give it a shot. No, it's funny here, uh, uh, Simon Armitage came out with Sir Gaiman and the Green Knight, but yeah. but you don't. You use the Green Knight, but you're using someone called the Pearl Poet. Well, yeah, I mean, that's who they think wrote it. And I was I can't speak Middle English. I can't read Middle English. I, I used Armitage's version at first, and some other yeah. versions as well. Um, but, uh, you know, it's a sort of triangulation of authors to find my version. And you use Nutella's through the neck. <laughs> yeah. Part of the alliteration. I needed to make an alliteration there, and I thought it, it, it originally was butters, I think, and so I kept I kept with the bread spread. And yeah, this was, I think, some knife slicing through the spine or some yeah. such. But uh, that's interesting. You're using a, a noun as a verb. I mean, yeah, that's a, that's an old that's an old trick, you know, and, it, yeah. and it, it's it's nice to push to push a word like that into uh, into new meanings, into new grammatical places. Yeah, Shakespeare was was probably the best at it. Oh yeah. Finally, Eric Ormsby, and you end with Molly Bloom's famous monologue. Yes, I am. I am Robert. Maybe a bit of homoeroticism. Yeah. Yes, I am. Yes. That comes as an answer to to Oppenheimer, who's driving Louis to the uh, to the hospital, and he he turns around and Oppenheimer says to Sloton, "No, you aren't. You'll be fine, son. Trust me." You know, ostensibly, ostensibly, you know, answering Sloton, saying, "I'm going to die." And so when uh, when Louis says, "I am," it's it's that mix of the thanatonic principle and the life giving principle. Everyone's probably heard this, but after the Trinity bomb was first exploded, uh, the first the first actual nuclear, successful nuclear test. They didn't think it was going to work, first of all. And when it did, you know, Oppenheimer apparently, who was a very well-read man, turned to the, the man next to him and said, quoted some lines from the Bhagavad Gita, I have become death, the destroyer of worlds. Um, so when, when Sloten is, as he's responding to him, as he says, but yes, I am, I am Robert, yes, I am, yes. He's, he's saying, I am, I'm Robert, I'm, I'm death, I'm I'm a destroyer. Yeah, he he. Just as he's as he's renouncing the you know the final illusion, which is that he won't die. He's he's also accepting he's accepting his his part. I think. And Molly, of course, is in the throes of passion and allowing life. Yeah, who was it who said? I can't remember. It might have been Nabokov, who has probably the funniest, most condescending uh, appraisal of Ulysses I've I've read. 
but I think he says that that's the one glimmer of hope in an otherwise, you know, elephant march of bleakness, you know, or some some such thing, which isn't ex- exactly fair. But yeah, it's that's that that is real blooming of Ulysses, the you know Molly the Great, the Great Bizarre Earth Mother, mm-hmm. um, preparing preparing herself for uh, the world for another insemination. Well, let me extend my wish to you that your book hits the landscape like a like a bomb well, without any death. I hope it's not a dud, right? To, to pun a little bit. The hope is that it's going to make an impact. Mm. The danger is that you'll be laughed at? It could be. Could be. Yeah. A book a book is like a bomb because you'll know right away whether it works or whether it doesn't. Yes and no. There are some great books that bombed and right. then later revived. Elliot was good at bringing back yeah. Marvell. No, you're right, you're right, um, you're right. But, I mean, I think that, first of all, James Wood, he, he talks about this, where he talks about a, a good book is, what's it called, how, uh, how fiction works. What a good book is really about more than anything is, is, the, is the, um, the evolution, the burgeoning of a metaphor. And that is, a, a, like, a very simple on or off. It either works or it does not. You can tell right away. And the, 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 way, that, the way that people read it, you know, people can proclaim a, a great book a failure, that's fine. But there is this sort of internal logic to the thing that can't be refuted. Um, and because the book isn't quite done yet, um, I, I, can't, I can't say whether or, not it's, whether or not it's a success or failure yet. Part of it, though, is your own belief in it. Yeah. What the hell do they know if they can't see the genius in it? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I guess, I mean, you run the risk, though, of sounding arrogant you know if you think that but of course i mean how you would have to be insane not to think that not to think that you know something that you think is good uh is is good right yeah i mean i just i I see now i had this sort of revelatory moment with it where i totally saw the 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 logic of it and, and exactly what needed to go now as i get closer to finishing the book things that i choose to translate have more and more specific criteria at the beginning it felt like i could just take anything in and you know, the book would be whatever I was reading at the time, I would translate. But now the requirements are so much stricter that in order for it to adhere to that logic, I have to be more punctilious about the stuff that I choose to translate. So the stakes with every success, with every successful poem that I include, the stakes get higher and higher. And that's the other thing, too, is that there have been a lot of books that are sort of, I guess people might look at Bloom and say that it's like one of these, you know, narrative persona books which Canadians have, they, they pump out like they're going out of style, you know? I, I don't think it is very much about Sloten, eventually. Like, at the, at, the end of, at the end of it, it's not really about Sloten. It's about this thing that is blooming on its own accord, you know? It's, it's the hybrid. Yeah. Well, isn't that what literature primarily is? It's a great, long conversation, and you riff off uh, everything that's gone before. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Although some might say, well, why didn't you just come up with something yourself without relying on these these frames of others? But again, you could make that criticism of Joyce. Well, and it's just, you'd be talking about another book, right? Yeah. Uh, like, that's not what this book is about. This, this is the only way. Again, like, I'm not, it's not just an affectation. I'm doing it because this is what the book calls for. I, I want it to be a, like a, I want to be a slave to the subject, not the master of it. So it, there was inevitability to this to this form that I chose that I don't really have much say over. Thanks very much. Thank you. I've been speaking with Michael Lister. 
He has been published in a variety of different literary and arts magazines in Canada, and his debut, Bloom, is forthcoming from the House of Anansi 